You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. It's uh, good to be uh, together today in, in worship. It's good to have uh, uh, old uh, friends and uh, former staff members back with us today. Jason and Kayla Johnson are here with us. Welcome them. And I'm sure you'll want to see them uh, if you haven't already had that opportunity today. Romans chapter 5, though, I want to remind you this morning of the uh, importance of what we're studying together here uh, in Romans. We, we knew it was going to be a long road, and uh, indeed it is, but uh, we are uh, privileged to be able to, uh, to speak about the gospel of God. We, we said at the beginning of this series of, uh, in Romans that one of Paul's purposes in writing it was to establish us in the gospel, to establish us. Chapter 1, verses 11 through 15, he says he was eager to preach the gospel uh, because he wanted to strengthen or establish uh, them. They were already Christians, but uh, he wanted to establish them in uh, the gospel. And so how does the church grow? How does the church uh, be fruitful? How do we grow as Christians? One of the things that's clear from the book of Romans and uh, from Paul here is is not because we depart from the gospel, uh, but rather it is because we focus on it more. Uh, We don't need less of the gospel. We need more of the gospel uh, in our lives. And, uh, and so I, I want to encourage you uh, with that. I, I came across a saying this week that talked about how that the gospel may be uh, killing the church and, and that people might need to move on from the gospel uh, in order to, uh, to help them to grow. And I hope that you realize how anti-biblical that statement is. Uh, and yet it characterizes uh, so much of, of preaching and, and churches that we hear today, it was John Perkins who said, uh, something is wrong at the root of American evangelicalism. I believe that we've lost the gospel, he said, God's reconciling power, which is unique to Christianity, and we've substituted church growth. We've learned how to reproduce the church without the message. Now, think about the significance of that. Can you fathom the Apostle Paul ever writing one of his letters to a New Testament church and saying to them, you guys are preaching the gospel too much. You really need to back off and quit doing that. Uh, the gospel is the lifeblood of the church. Uh, it's the only life-giving, transforming, saving, sanctifying power in the church. And Paul said here in Romans 1, 16, from the beginning, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And uh, so I would just urge you, uh, resist that kind of notion that we might need to move away uh, from the gospel. Um, if someone says that, you probably need to move away from them. Uh, because it's, it's uh, unbiblical, and don't entertain that for a moment. Um, and so now, beginning here in chapter 5, all the way to chapter 8, Paul's theme is the assurance of the gospel. How do we know that we're children of God? How do we know that we're, we're saved? And he tells us, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Lord, uh, we approach Your Word humbly. These are not just the words of Paul. These are Your words. And Lord, You have told us that we are sanctified by them. And we ask humbly that You would do that work in our hearts and lives now. For those that don't know You, we pray that you would do your saving work in them. I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So how do we have assurance of our salvation? Well, he tells us, first of all, it's because we, verse one, we have peace with God. Uh, secondly, he says, verse 2, we have access into His grace. Uh, third, because we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, but, but you notice there that Paul says that there's more. You, it's kind of interesting. As you've got to love the phrase in verse 3. He says, more than that. Uh, and, and I'm asking, more than that? What, what, how can there be more? I mean, these are three wonderful things that we have talked about, but Paul says there's something equally greater. There's more assurance. There's more proof that we're His, that we're among the children of God and, and destined for the hope of glory. What is the proof? It, it is, in fact, he says, the way in which our faith enables us to face our sufferings. There's a, a progression here around the idea of rejoicing. Um, verse 2, we are rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, we are rejoicing in our sufferings. Uh, by the end of the section, if you look down in verse 11, there's something even more wonderful, he says. and it, He says, we are rejoicing in God Himself, uh, which is an extraordinary thing. How can a person go from Romans chapter 1... I know that seems like such a long time ago, but where Paul says, in our sinful condition apart from Christ, we neither glorified God nor gave thanks to Him, to where now we are rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God and then rejoicing in God Himself. There's a remarkable transformation that has happened from the inside out that can only be explained by the grace of God in our lives. Amen? But this middle one, in some ways, is more difficult for us to understand. That the change, that such a change in our lives has been brought about by grace, that Paul says we, one of the evidences of that is that we now rejoice in our sufferings. And, and you ask, the, maybe in, in my mind, I'm having mental conversations here, um, uh, is he serious? Does he know what he's talking about? And, and that's kind of funny in itself, because then if I think about it, and you've, if any of you have read Acts, I'm sure that you have, or any of Paul's letters, you know right away that he's not blowing smoke when he says this, is he? 
I mean, think of Acts chapter 16 just as one example where Paul and his associate Silas had been arrested for preaching the gospel and they were beaten and they were thrown in prison and uh, their feet placed in stocks. And at Acts 16.25, it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're rejoicing and they're suffering, singing praises to Him. So Paul is not just saying these things in Romans 5. He's, he lives these things. And what he's saying is that, that Christians, the, the, those who have been justified, verse 1, those who have taken hold of the gospel and the gospel has taken hold of them, that they will begin rejoicing in their suffering. Lloyd-Jones writes this, there's no more important and no more subtle test of our profession of the Christian faith than the way we react to the trials, troubles, and tribulations of life in this world. He goes on to describe it as an acid test of Christian faith, and that is a powerful picture, isn't it? Suffering being an acid test. Our Lord explained it like this in the parable of the sower. You, uh, I'm sure, remember. Remember some of the seed that, that the farmer sowed fell on a rocky ground. Matthew 13, 20, it says, Jesus says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. But he endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So, so there are folks, Jesus says, that think they've become Christians because maybe they've had some kind of an emotional experience in the church, and it was moving to them. They received it with joy. Maybe there were tears and of joy and emotions, and they told everybody about it. But then sometime later, he says, that when some things started to begin to come into their lives, some tribulations, some trials, there were difficulties, that they fell away and they no longer believed. Why? Uh, well, John will later tells us because they were never saved to begin with. But with the trials of life, it revealed the truth. It's easy to see how these things test our faith. And so what is to be the reaction to our suffering? We, we know certainly it's not grumbling and complaining. That's a whole other sermon. Um, but Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we rejoice in our sufferings. How is that possible? How can this be a reality in our lives. Well, he gives us answers here in verses 3 and 4. So I just want to walk through these couple of verses. I want to give you three P's this morning. These are not my P's, but they come from a preacher named Sinclair Ferguson. And, and I want to share with you three P's because I want you to remember them. Because here's, I don't know about you, but here's one of the fundamental problems in, in my life uh, when it comes to trials and suffering. There's nothing that causes me uh, spiritual amnesia and forgetfulness uh, in, my in my life than suffering does. Trials, when they come, cause me to simply forget about all that I know and believe. 
And so one of the battles is, is remembering these things, calling these things to mind that I know to be true. So I want you to remember these three Ps this morning. First, remember the principle of suffering. The principle of suffering. Uh, this seems to be what Paul is reminding us of in verse 3 when he says, not only that, but rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces. That suffering produces. The word rejoicing there, we talked about uh, last week, it means the same thing, to glory in, to boast in. And, and, and I think the word in is very important there because he's not saying that we rejoice or we glory in spite of our troubles, uh, that, that through these uh, things, that though these things are happening to us, that we keep rejoicing in spite of them. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I don't think it also means that we glory in the midst of them. That's part of it, but I don't think that's, that's the whole of what he's saying. What Paul is saying is that we glory on account of our sufferings. We glory because of our sufferings. It's not a new principle. Our, our Lord, if you remember, taught us this in the Beatitudes in one place. Matthew 5, 10, and 12, He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the midst of persecution, Jesus calls us to rejoice. We see that lived out in the New Testament. Acts chapter 5, verse, uh, uh, having been persecuted and arrested and threatened with death, if they ever speak about Jesus again, Acts 5.41 says uh, that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were rejoicing that they'd gotten the opportunity to suffer for Christ. And then there's James. You all know that uh, verse in James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There's Peter, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. There's nothing strange, he says. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. New Testament is full of this teaching, isn't it? It's all over the place. How? How does this work out in our lives? Paul says here in Romans 5, the way this works out is because of something that we know. We know something. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces. Here's why we rejoice. The principle behind it is that suffering is productive in our lives. It's productive. Suffering produces something in us. I, I think the King James Version may have something like, uh, it worketh in us. Uh, there, there's a principle at play. There's a divine power that is behind and in that verb produces or worketh. There's a divine productivity that we know is behind our trials. And the principle is simply this. God uses our suffering. He uses it. 
This should not scare us. It should not cause us to despair. But rather, Paul says it should cause us to rejoice that our God, our faithful God, who has loved us, who has called us, verse 1, who has justified us through faith in Christ, and the one who promises already to lead us all the way home to glory, that He is working for our good in all things, even in our suffering, and this should cause us to rejoice. I bet if I polled you this morning about the times in your life, looking back as a believer, the times in your life which you have grown the most in your walk with the Lord, uh, that it would almost inevitably be connected to some kind of trial in your life, some kind of season of difficulty, that God used something in your life, and maybe you didn't realize it at the time, it was horrible, it was miserable at the time, there wasn't a lot of joy, but you look back now and you think and see how God used that to strip away pride in your life or selfishness in your life or idolatry or self-righteousness or your love for the world or pleasures of sin or something. And you look back and it was painful at the time, but as you look back, you see that it brought growth in your life. That God used that trial and circumstance and that difficulty and that suffering to bring you closer to Him. Part of what that word suffering means, that word that Paul uses there, is the ideal of an external pressure. So I've given you three Ps. There's a fourth P. You can just write it down if you want to. It's not on your outline, but it's an important one. It's the idea of external pressure. That God uses suffering. He uses pressure affliction, troubles, uh, to bring about transformation in our lives in order that we might become more like His Son, Jesus Christ. You remember, uh, we talked about it last week, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, that God is transforming us from one degree of glory to the next to be more like Jesus. God uses pressure uh, Jesus taught His disciples this, I think, in John 15. He said, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes. He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. And you see, the way that God often prunes us is through pressure. It's through sufferings. And it's not always clear in the moment that's what is happening, but what God is doing. But rest assured, we serve the vine dresser, don't we? A faithful God. And and that not one single stroke of his pruning, if you will, is, is wasted. It's used by him over and over. We can't understand it often, even the details. We don't understand the details of, of our sufferings fully in this life. I think we will see it clearly in the next. But here's what we're told. We can trust this principle because we can trust this vine dresser. We can trust that God is using all of the difficulties and the sufferings in our lives to make us more like Jesus, and we can rejoice in that. To finish James 1, 2, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 3, for you know. That's what Paul says. You know 
that the testing of your faith produces, it worketh steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. That is like Jesus, lacking in nothing. So that's the principle. God is working in our suffering. You need to call it to mind. You need to remember that when suffering comes and you're tempted like I am to forget all that you know and to lose all perspective and to pity yourself, you need to know, no, wait a minute, this is from the vine dresser. And it's for my good. Notice secondly, though, the pattern of suffering. The pattern. That is, that God is purposeful in His working. There's a pattern to His work. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces. Here's the pattern. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's a pattern here. First, God works to produce endurance in us. Some of your translations may have patience. He works to produce patience. It, is, it means the ability to go on patiently enduring. <laughs> Steadfastness. Uh, able to stand firm and not be crushed by the weight or the pressure that comes upon you. To keep standing when it's placed upon you. In high school, I took a weightlifting class. Don't laugh because obviously it didn't have much effect on me. But I did learn some uh, techniques about, uh, different techniques for using weights to create strain and, and pressure on the muscles so that they could, they could grow, so that you're able to withstand more, more weight. More, more pressure and endure more. And, and this, is, this is why, I, I know that you know this, but, but, but this is why complacency and comfort uh, and ease can never produce endurance in your life. And yet this is the very thing that I long for so many times. Is it not you? Just me amening here? Amen. I wish I had more of it. It's only under the pressure. When we're exposed to things that bring us pain and, and challenge us, then strain that, that we actually grow. And so here's the pattern. We're confronted by trials and tribulations, these pressures that come, and the moment that they come, they're, they're, meant, they're meant immediately to remind me, as we sang earlier, Lord, I need you. And, and we're going along, and everything's great, it's fine, it's hunky-dory, and then wham. And when it happens, we're, we're faced in that moment to, to, as I acknowledge to you and confess to you, to forget everything of all the precious promises of God and all perspective, divine perspective about any of these things and take all of these things into my own hands, or to remember the first P, the principle that God intends this suffering and uses this suffering to make me more like Jesus. And the pattern is to work endurance in me. Will I, in that moment, 
Uh, turn to him in faith. Will I know these things? Will I remember? Will I, will I pray? Will I look to his word for guidance in my situation? Will I stand on his promises for me in spite of that all of the circumstances look completely contradictory to anything that God has ever promised me? Will I stand on his word and not be crushed by the pressure? And they're designed to, for me to depend on Christ. Secondly, he says, the pattern, the pressure produces endurance, and endurance produces character in me. Here's what happens when I do, uh, he says. Uh, there's character, or if you will, I, I liked this uh, translation, this aspect, testedness. Testedness. It produces testedness in me, or if you will, proven character. Not just character, proven character. What Paul is saying is that this patient endurance under the pressure leads to proof that I, I really am a believer, that I, I'm passing the test. Remember, the, the, again, the parable of the seeds, when tribulation, persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away, except the true Christian doesn't fall away. It's not that he doesn't receive and experience the pressure, but he doesn't fall away. It's proven. He endures. Now, Ferguson notes this, the pressure that God brings to bear on our lives in His providence produces the thing that, that may be the greatest need in the evangelical church today, that is character. Testedness. Testedness. And we've seen this as a matter of illustration even this week, the, the moral decadence and depravity and the evil that's been revealed, not just in our world, but even in the Southern Baptist Convention this week with um, the report that was released. It reveals the great need of our lives to be dependent on Christ that He would transform our character and to holiness. And for far too long, I think the message of our pulpits has, has been that Jesus wants to fix all of your problems, and He wants to help you to have a life of ease, and to ease all of the suffering and tension and pain in your life, uh, so you can be free from troubles. And, 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 and to be honest, such shallow life application preaching has produced shallow believers and the church. It's not produced the mighty Christian character that we see Paul talking about here that would lead us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow Jesus Christ. There's not a quick fix here. It's not, it's not fixed by, by some kind of easy steps and pragmatism, the problems that we have. It's not, definitely not fixed by adopting worldly methodologies that, that, that may be very popular in the moment, but that are contrary to God's Word. It's only fixed if we allow the pressures that we're experiencing and the, the persecution and even the correction and judgment to drive us back to God and His Word. Humbling ourselves, confessing our weaknesses and our sins, and obeying the gospel. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces this kind of character. 
And he goes on, character produces hope. Hope, what hope? The hope at the end of verse 2 that we talked about, the hope of the glory of God, the hope of seeing God and, and being glorified in His presence. Suffering, he says, increases our hope. Trials are not meant to lead you away from hope. They're meant to increase your longings and desires for hope. 1 Peter 6, 7 again, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. My suffering is a part of the pattern of God's work in my life. This is why I rejoice in it, not because it's fun. I rejoice in it, uh, not because it, it's often miserable and so forth, but it's, I rejoice in the work that God is doing in me. Lloyd-Jones again, he says, but having passed through the furnace of my affliction, I am much more certain my hope is greater than it was at the beginning. It should cause you to long for hope. It produces endurance, character, and hope in me. It's why we can say with the psalmist, and this is a tough verse, Psalm 119.71, it was good for me that I was afflicted, he says. It wasn't fun, it wasn't easy, it wasn't comfortable, but it was good for me because it caused me to turn from my sin and turn more to Jesus the principle of suffering, the pattern of suffering. Third, the priority of suffering. The priority of suffering. Now, it's not explicit in the text. It's just all over it, and it's all over the other texts that we've mentioned. And as I thought about it this week, I, I think this might be the most important point, at least in my own life. It, it, it's imperative that we embrace this and believe this this morning this priority. Here's what it is. It's the realization that God has only one priority for my life, and, and that is to make me more like Jesus. So much of the conflict and tension that we experience in our suffering is, is due to the fact and, that we have a different set of priorities for ourselves than God does. We're, we're, we're so prone to believe that God, again, wants to, uh, if I'm following Him, He's going to bless me and He's going to fix all my problems and all my tension's going to go away and I'm going to be comfortable. When the truth is, and this is, this is hard, but I, I believe it is true, that God is not at all interested in solving all your problems or mine. He is absolutely from the Bible, he is absolutely 100% committed to making you more like Jesus Christ. He's not interested so much in your happiness. I know it's quoted, uh, cliched. He is interested in your holiness. He is not so much in in interested in your comfort as much as he is in your Christ-likeness. And, and only when we yield to Him and His priority for us will He ever... Will, I think only when we yield to this 
this sense, this knowledge, will we ever be able to rejoice in our sufferings? Because it's what it's all about. C.S. Lewis uh, illustrates this well, and I'd never uh, heard, heard this from him, but but imagine yourself as living uh, as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild the house, you. And at first, perhaps you understand what He's doing because He comes in and He's kind of fixing some stuff that's been broken, and you know they've been broken for a long time, and you know they needed to be fixed, and so you don't, you know, this is this is all good. All of these jobs needed to be doing, so you're not surprised. But then all of a sudden, uh, God begins to knock down a wall or two. And you're like, now wait a minute, that hurts. Well, what are you doing? That wasn't, I didn't think that, I didn't think that was broken. What, what are you doing to me? And, and the explanation is ultimately in, in, in the illustration that he's building a quite different house than you thought of. He's adding an addition over here, and he's adding a floor over here, and he's putting up a, a room over there, and he's running up towers over here, and all of these things. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, you know, with a little picket fence and all is well and comfort and stuff, but, but actually God, God comes, God is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. The dwelling place of God, Paul called us. Now, that's, that illustration is good, I think, because it, it, is, it reminds us, especially to those who are suffering today, and, and I'm sure there are some, that whatever pressures you are under today, to know this, that they are not out of God's control or beyond God's control but rather He's using them to transform you and shape you to be more like His Son. He, he worketh in you to make you more like Jesus. Don't resist His work. Don't, don't, don't resist it. Just submit to it. Submit to it. And, and know that the vine dresser, He is good and faithful, church. He loves you. One more point just in closing to think about. Uh, don't think for a moment that a sinner like you and me, which we are, that we can be made to be like Jesus without suffering at least a little bit of the pressure that he endured. Look at Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, the the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The way you know this fine dresser loves you so much is that Jesus died on the cross for you. Don't forget it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. They are for sure challenging. And we pray for your help in rejoicing in them and rejoicing in our suffering, Lord. I pray for those today especially that may be facing some pressure, trials, tribulations, persecutions. 
Lord, that you would please by your spirit uh, work in, in their hearts and lives today in a very special way to know that you are a sure and steady anchor, uh, that you are the lifter of our heads, that you are good and faithful and loving. And may our eyes ever be on you. We pray that you would do this in our hearts and lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.